All right, I'm going to pray. Let's go. God, we want to thank you for you. We want to thank you that you, that you call us, that you love us, that you woo us. We want to thank you that you, you give us grace and that you are a God that saves. And so, God, we come in here this morning just in all different places and spots in our life. And, and uh, Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one individually. And God, I pray that you, that you would continue to do the work that only you could do in each one of our lives, that, that deep work of the soul. Lord, this morning I pray the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, so chapter 10 of, of the Gospel of John, we're, we're going to kind of finish out, and I'm not going to read through it because we wanted to kind of launch right into chapter 11, but we're going to kind of go over it. Chapter 10, we find Jesus towards the end. He's still confronting. He's still kind of in the face of the Jewish people, and he tells them that he and the Father are one. And after he says that, they want to stone him. They want to throw rocks at him until he's dead. And he comes up and he very coolly and calmly asks them, well, what, what good deed do you want to stone me for? It's kind of like if somebody put a gun to your face and you were just like, now why do you want to do that? And, and so this is what Jesus is facing. He's facing a hostile crowd that they're going to throw rocks at him until he's dead. And he's like, well, well, what is it that you want to stone me for? And they're like, well, listen, it's not about the good things that you're doing. It's this whole thing that you think you're God. See, that we can't get past that. They can't get past the truth of who Jesus really is. And so he will challenge them. Don't believe me if I don't do the things of God. Jesus is doing amazing things right now. He's doing things that have not been done in the history of the world. And he says, listen, you don't have to believe me. Believe the things that I'm doing. Believe the evidence of what I've been teaching and the people that I've been healing. Remember the blind guy? That was pretty cool. Come on, you got to admit. And if you don't believe me, look to those things. And then he'll tell them again, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And for the Jewish people at this point, no one claims unity with God. It's blasphemy. That, that's, that's a death sentence right there. But Jesus, we know, is no mere human. The Messiah, the Son of God, he is God. And so Jesus like, you know, all right, I'm, I'm out of here. And he decides to go back across the Jordan where John has been baptizing. Um, but with all, within all of this drama, within, within all the attempts on his life, with the attempts to arrest him, the text tells us, the story tells us that people continue to come to him. People continue to come and, and believe and have faith. They, through, even though there's stubborn, stubborn opposition by some people, there are people going, he's, he's got something. He's got something. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to follow this guy. They looked past religion. They looked past the, just the status quo and what these people would find is healing. What these people would find would be hope and forgiveness these people found the Messiah. Now, have you ever asked yourself, what group would you be part of? I mean, really, would you be part of the group that just wants to throw rocks at him until he's dead? Or would you be part of the group that goes, you know, this guy, this guy's got something. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow him. I'm going to start putting my faith in him. 
all of us, I would bet you all of us would want to believe that we would be part of that group that follows Jesus. We would be there going, yeah, Jesus, maybe not the 12, but we would be in the 72, baby. We would just be like close. We would be chummy, chummy with him. But I'm not sure that's true. At least not for all of us. Maybe for all of us here, not in the church down the street though. But, you know, and, and so, I mean, I guess it comes down to, do you value religion more than a relationship? Do you value the trappings of, of, of this stuff more than seeking and searching and looking and trying to find the purposes and the will of God in your life? What group would you part, be part of? And that was a freebie, and we're not going to stay there, so let's go on. So anyway, so after this all happens, we get to chapter 11. It's the story of Lazarus. It's the story of Jesus raising his, his friend from the dead. Now, the other gospel writers, writers, they will say that when Jesus goes in and he starts to tip tables in the temple and he makes the cord, uh, the whip out of the cord and he starts to beat people, that was the catalyst for him to go to the cross. That was the last straw for the people. But for John, in John's gospel, it's this miracle. It's this thing where Jesus raises a guy from the dead in a very public display of God's power. This was the last straw for, the, for the, um, the Jewish leaders. They have become scared. They have become jealous. They're like, everybody is following Jesus. And they're afraid of losing their power. They're afraid of losing their control. They're afraid of losing the perks that, that the Roman Empire has given them to rule over their people. And so they've come to the conclusion in chapter 11 that Jesus has got to go. And so they begin to, to, to make their plan. So I'm going to go to John chapter 11. We'll start reading in verse... Well, Wes is getting good, man. That's nice. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for, the, for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. All right. The name Lazarus is the same name as the Hebrew name Eleazar, and it means God has helped. And if you know the story at all, you could say that God has helped this guy. The guy gets sick, the guy dies, the guy gets raised from the dead. Now, the sisters, they send a message to Jesus. They tell him, the one that you love is sick. There's no mention of Lazarus' name. It just says, hey, the one that you love is sick. And if that's enough, if that statement is enough for Jesus to know who they are talking about, you can see that, that they are very tight, that they are very close as friends. We don't see the name mentioned, but Jesus knows exactly who the sisters are talking about. This is a very close relationship that they have. It would be like Martha and Mary's kids, they would call Jesus like Uncle Jesus, but he's not really their uncle, it's just their friend. You know, we have that. And that's how, how close that they are. And so the family that Jesus, uh, of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and Jesus, they're, they're tight. They're very tight, which is going to make for some interest, interesting reading as we take this story down the road a little bit. Now, contrary to our sometimes assumptions as we read into things, the sisters don't ask Jesus for anything. They just make a statement. They say, you know, the one you love, he's, he's sick. They never specifically ask him, he's sick. Could you come? Could you come heal our brother? Could, could you do something about this? Being so close, 
The sisters would know what's going on with Jesus. They would know that if he were to come to visit them, that he might be in trouble. There are attempts on his life. There are attempts for him to be arrested. They know the trouble that he can get in. But even in this vague statement, they are looking for Jesus to do something. But they never put stipulations on it. They never tell him how they think it should be done. They never tell him what they would like to see done. They never just, they never lay it out. Well, can you come? Can you heal him? Can you do a long distance healing? We've heard that you've done those before. A little whoa, and you know, he's, he's better now. They never ask because they, they have faith. Now, maybe it's not a full understanding of who Jesus is at this time, but they know that Jesus, if he wanted to do something, he can very well do something. He could heal the sickness. In fact, uh, Martha and Mary will later say in the story, if you were here, my brother would have never died. They have faith, but they don't tell Jesus how or what or why he should do something. And so Jesus gets the message. Yep, Lazarus is sick, but it will not end in death, but it's for God's glory, and it's so that the Son may be glorified. This is not the first time that a situation like this has occurred. Remember just a few weeks ago, I don't know, maybe a couple months ago, the way we worked through the Bible, uh, the blind man. Jesus said, the, the guy's not blind because of sin. The guy is blind so that the, so that the power of God could be displayed in him. And this is kind of what Jesus is, is alluring to with Lazarus. He tells him that this sickness will not end in death. Now, That does not mean he is not going to die because we see the story, he will die. But the permanent outcome of him being sick will not be his permanent death, but instead it's for the glory of God to be displayed and that the Son may be glorified through it. And so the glory of God does not necessarily mean that God makes everything really easy for us. The glory of God does not mean, is not always manifested itself, manifests itself in our life just being peaches and cream, smiles and giggles. Lazarus is going to die. The family is going to experience the grief of losing a brother. I mean, if, if the glory of God was only revealed through mountaintop experiences and the peaches and cream of our life, then some of us haven't seen or experienced a lot of the glory of God. Because hardship and brokenness and frustration and sickness and difficulties and suffering are a part of our human condition ever since the garden. And suffering knows no boundaries. It doesn't know cultural, uh, social, economic. It knows no boundaries. We all experience it in some way, shape, or form. And so I think for us, I believe for us, we really need to take a look at this whole idea of of God's glory. I mean, he's making a really big statement here. He's saying that the glory of God will be revealed through suffering, even death, and through this, that the Son will be glorified. Okay. The Greek word and the Hebrew word for glory, they, they have different meanings. The, Greek, uh, the Hebrew word for glory is kabod. It means weight. It's like the weight of God, God's glory. But for the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word, the meaning is to perceive something as good. That's the word that's used here, for God's glory and that the Son may be glorified, that we would perceive the goodness of God so we can have the, perce- the right, the correct perceptions of God. 
So this illness, this sickness, and this temporary death is for those people at that time and through thousands of years that we've had the story so that we can perceive that God is good. And somehow, as God and Jesus are one, both of them will be shown good through the story. You know, I don't know if it's just me, but it's always interesting that the glory of God can be displayed through suffering. That, the glory, that, that through suffering, we could learn a correct perception of God, that God is good, that the goodness of God can be demonstrated through suffering. And for me, maybe it's just me, but as I think about this sometimes, doesn't there seem to be a better way? I mean, I mean really, it's just, okay, what if, what if instead of suffering, that God's just stopped all the suffering? Isn't that like a better level of goodness? Like, imagine, imagine what you're walking down the street and, and there's a car coming and God goes, hey, you know what? You're going to get hit by that car and you're going to suffer, but I'm not going to let it happen. I'm thinking, God is good. Th- thank you, God. But, you know, it, it just doesn't always work out that way. Is it, is it maybe because in order for us to recognize goodness, there has to be suffering, that there is no good without the bad? that we would never even recognize the goodness of God if there wasn't some type of suffering that kind of counteracted that. I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. And so there's this idea that the glory of God has been demonstrated through hardship and pain and brokenness and suffering in the world. For it's, it's, I should word it this way. It's my experience for Christian people that we have a really, a very juvenile mentality of suffering in God's glory. You know that saying, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. I used to say that, and now I really cringe when I hear that because it's one of those things that just aggravates me because there's absolutely no weight behind it at all. We just say that. Well, why is God good? I don't know, because the Bible tells me it's good. Well, what if you don't believe in the Bible? How can, you, how can you say the goodness of God is the goodness of God when all these things are falling apart around the world? Or, or better yet, what if, what, if this, what if this person in the family has, has just something tragic has happened? And you're trying to tell them, well, God is good all the time. You're, you might get punched in the nose. In fact, rabbis will teach that if you, were to, if, if you can say in your own trauma, in your own personal trauma, if you can come to the point of going, this is for the best, God is good. You're a mature person of faith. But if you were to say that about somebody else, you're in sin. And so we have this, just kind of this, you know, I don't know, this weird thing that God is good. And, and so what does it mean? What does it mean God is good in suffering? What does it mean that God is good in, in all these things? Some of you might know that I love to read Jewish writings. I like to read rabbinical writings, ancient writings um, from the rabbis. Uh, the Jews have wrestled with God long before we ever have. And they have a really interesting take on God. They really have, they, they, they get into God's face. They are not afraid of God, which is very interesting to me. I mean, they're just like, oh God, mm-hmm, what now, huh? And, and, and so they are just always uh, just, just this chutzpah in the context of God. And that's like a Yiddish term, so deal with it. Anyway, and, but for me, as I read these things and as I study um, the Jewish traditions, I always try to link them to Jesus. I always try to find how can this, how can Jesus fulfill this? How can this be linked to our faith? And if I can't, 
then I just kind of read it and I kind of just pop it in my mind and it just kind of sits there. Um, but if it can, it, it just opens up for me this whole other possible thought process for our faith. And so this week, I've come across some, as I, as I do, as, as I kind of read and study uh, the, the Jewish traditions. Um, in fact, one rabbi I listened to last week, he was, he was talking about the ancient Jews and how some of those Jewish men, they wandered from the truth and they began something called Christianity. I was like, what? You know, I was like, really? I was like, I don't talk bad about you people. Come on, man. And so anyway, um, I digress. And, 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 so, and so what I want to do this morning, okay, I want to challenge you this morning in your thinking of the goodness of God and the glory of God demonstrated through suffering. Some of you might just go, he's whacked. You know, I, I was sick last week, so there was a time of dehydration that could affected my, so, my, my brain. I don't know. But this is, we just, we just end up being too comfortable in the things that we know and the things that we think. Most of us don't even know what we believe, let alone try to explain it in any logical sense to somebody out there that doesn't understand our faith. And so I want to challenge you this morning. You don't have to agree with me. That's fine. But I have found many links where Jesus can actually fulfill some of these teachings or, or these teachings that we're going to talk about this morning. All right. Now, I will say this. I may refer to my notes quite a bit because this confused me for days. And so I want to be able to make sure I communicate it well. You have to pay attention. This is a movie that you're going to have to pay attention to. If you miss one part, you're going to miss the whole thing. And if there's a lot of talking going on, I'm going to say, shh, you're going to miss the next part. So if you miss it, it'll be online. You can go back and listen to it. But this is going to challenge you a little bit in the way you've thought about the goodness of God, the glory of God, and demonstrated through suffering. All right, you ready? Here we go. Pay attention now. I'm watching. I know I can see people when they fall asleep. Believe me, I don't say anything, but one of these days I'm going to get a straw and spitballs. Just like, boom. All right, so the Jewish sages will teach this, that God continues to create. Even, even to this day, God continues to create. Yes, creation went the six days, and God created, and God created, and God created. But God did not stop creating. He rested on the seventh day, and the seventh day was the Sabbath. And that to this day, God will continue and is continuing to create. It's the doctrine of perpetual creation over and over and over again. Now, it begins with Psalm 33. It says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. God speaks into existence everything. The words of God at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, you can go there and read it, speaks everything that we see into existence. And the sages will teach that he has done so by the ten utterances. Wes, put those up there so we could see these. These are the ten utterances of creation. There shall be light, and there was light. There shall be a firmament between the waters, and it shall divide the, between water and water. The waters below the firmament shall be gathered into one place. The earth will sprout vegetation. There shall be luminaries in the sky. The waters shall teem with living creatures. The earth shall bring forth living creatures in their species. I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the earth. We shall make man with our image, of our likeness. It is not good that man is alone. I will make him a helper 
This, these are the ten utterances of creation. And there's a very interesting study that we might do, like six weeks, that, that these correspond to the Ten Commandments. Very cool stuff, uh, but we're not, that's, that's for a whole nother, for a whole nother time. But this is, this is the Word of God. You can go to Genesis 1. You can see all of these things in there that God speaks, and God speaks, and God speaks these things into existence. Now, for us, when we speak... Because we're humans, our words come out of our mouth, and that's it. Now, yes, our words can have, we say, our words can have a lasting effect. But in the reality, in the scheme of eternity, our words just fall off and die, in part because we're human, and, and our humanity is going to come to an end. And so our spoken words, they just kind of, they kind of go out there, and eventually they just die off. But not so, not so with the word of God. Psalm 119. Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. God's word, words, are eternal. They never go away. It remains forever. And then let's fast forward to the, to the Gospel of John, and it says, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it would say this, that He was the life, And that life was the light to all people. And it shines in the darkness. The light shining in the darkness is the first of the ten utterances of creation that the sages will teach. The first words of God spoken. Let there be light. And now we see that Jesus comes and he is the light. He is the life to all men. And so the word of God is eternal it doesn't go away. It never goes away. And has brought everything into existence. And the sages teach that it is still creating today. Moment by moment by moment. Now, this is where it's going to get freaky on you, okay? Uh, and, and we don't like mystical things in Christianity, we, we, we don't, it, it just kind of feels funky, it feels new age, we get nervous, because, you know, um, a, a man who's fully man and fully God, there's nothing mystical about that, you know, and him healing people and making people blind and raising people from the dead, absolutely nothing mystical about that at all, and him raising himself from the dead, come on, there's, I mean, that's, that's everyday experience, right, there's nothing mystical about that, we, we like that God is good all the time, all the time, God is good, man, it just feels good, you know, we can explain that, we don't like mystical, and if we, and if we get something that seems a little crazy or fuzzy in our brain, we just dismiss it, how many of you spend time every week thinking about meditating over the, the very simple kitty doctrine of the Trinity? Because that's not mystical. Three and one, one and three, uh, three separate. But here's where it gets a little interesting for us. In each moment, and this is the doctrine of perpetual creation, in each moment, creation as we know it reverts back to chaos as it was in the beginning. And God recreates in the blink of an eye what we are experiencing right now. And so over and over again, every moment, faster than the blink of an eye, God brings everything back to the place it was originally started from, chaos, and then it is, 
it's recreated to what we have now. It's kind of like the old movies, you know, the old tape movies where, where each individual frame was on that piece of film, but when it runs really fast, it looks like a very continuous flow of movie. And that's the way it is in this idea of, of perpetual creation that it's, it happens so fast that we don't see it, we don't experience it, we don't feel it, but because God's word is eternal and because God's word continues to create, he's bringing everything back chaos and recreating it. Remember, God created from nothing. We don't create from nothing. We have to have stuff to create something from. God creates from nothing. Remember, in the beginning, that word right there, in the beginning, God creates time. There is no time because if God stands outside of time, then there was no beginning for God. So he has to create the beginning. God creates time. Each time this creation happens, and it's happening as we are here now. You feel it? Now you're all going, oh, I can feel it. No, you can't. All right, I'm just telling you. It's the heat, really, okay? Just stand in front of the fan. We'll bring one to you. Each time it's recreated, things are slightly different. Things, things are just a little bit different. And the sages will teach that's because that each time creation happens, that the light of God fills the universe just a little bit more. And God is filling the universe more and more with his divine light, with his divine light more and more. And it's very interesting that, that in Revelations 21, the one who sits on the throne says, I am making all things new. And if you study that verse, it's not just this futuristic, I'm making everything new. It's the present, making everything new. Can this be God continually creating newness over and over and over again? And every time this creation happens, the universe expands just a little bit more and it allows the divine light of God to fill it. Now, when we get to Galatians chapter four, it says that at the right time, at the right time, God sent his son. At the right time, God sent the light of the world to be in the world. At the right time, at the right expansion of the universe, finally, creation was able to physically see, physically experience the divine light who is Jesus. And ultimately, this creative process will end as we get to the book of Revelations, in that one last divine act of creation where, where heaven crashes into earth and there's a new heaven and a new earth. And remember, it says, and there will be no more seas. In the Hebrew tradition, remember, we've talked about this, in the Hebrew tradition, the metaphor for chaos is oceans, is the deep, is the seas. In Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And, and over, the, over the deep was darkness. Darkness was over the deep. Darkness was over the chaos in the first utterance. Let there be light. And God spoke light to start to bring order to this. And eventually, through the word of God, through his creation, who is Jesus making all things new, we will come to the point where there will be no more chaos, no more pain, no more suffering. In fact, it says Eden will be restored. The way things that God originally created them to be, Jesus will bring to fruition and it will all be made good again. And then I love what it says 
at the very end, or 21 or 20, end of 21, beginning of 22, it says that this new city, the sun and the moon will not be needed anymore because the glory of God will be its light and the lamb will be its lamp. And so as creation is continually being created and expanding and expanding and more of the divine light of God enters in and enters in and enters in, we will get to the point where we won't need the sun or the moon or the stars because that glory of God will be what lights our world for all eternity. Now stay with me. What does this have to do with the goodness of God demonstrated through suffering? All right. If God is continually creating moment by moment by moment by moment in the blink of an eye, going back to to chaos and being created exactly what we see here, what we're experiencing now, that means God has not allowed anything to happen. God has purposely created everything that we're experiencing right now. It's his choice to create. It's his choice that our continued existence stay in existence. And he is creating purposefully, and he's not allowing anything. Well, what about free will? And we have choices, yes, but each moment God is creating us and our free will and creating the circumstances and creating the the um, consequences of our choices, moment by moment by moment by moment by moment. That means that in all situations, in all times, God is intimately involved. If God just allowed things to happen, he would be some passive type of God, kind of like on vacation, eh, whatever happens kind of happens, and, and that's okay. That's not who God is. But through this idea, through this doctrine of perpetual creation, God is actively involved in each moment of his creation throughout eternity. But what does that have to do with suffering and the goodness of God and and the right perception of God? Again, in my experience, I find that we as Christians, we like to separate God from evil. You know, God is good. God is just. God is love. God is everything that's just amazing. And the devil is evil. The devil is a liar. The devil is unjust. The devil is hatred. Um, the devil is sin. But remember this. God created the angel that would ultimately fall to become Satan. God created the angels that would ultimately follow that devil and follow him and become demons. And then by the time we get to Colossians, it says, well, wait a minute. Through him, Jesus, all things have been created, all things have been made, and for him. Okay, 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 wait, wait. So that means somehow that the devil has been created for Jesus. Now take that to lunch, a nice light conversation over that this afternoon, all right? I'm just, I'm, you know, I want to challenge your thinking. I don't want anybody to stay comfortable in their faith. But God has created all things to exist, and he is intimately involved in every second of of the existence of his creation because he is perpetually creating it. So, if God is creating, God doesn't create bad stuff. The sages will teach that God doesn't create 
evil. God doesn't create suffering, bad. God creates good. But they say that there's two kinds of good that God will create. There's a revealed good, and there's a concealed good. Revealed good is the things that we pray for, the obvious blessings in our life. It's, it's good health. It's a, you know, a good job. It's, it's you know, money in the bank. It's, it's healthy kids. It's, it's the, the things that we pray for our children, that they would know joy and safety and peace. It's good friends and happy times and a really good vacation and you know, that awesome experience. That's the revealed goodness of God, the revealed blessing of God. But then there's this thing called the concealed good. And the sages will teach that this is the, these are the things that we as people, we desperately try to avoid in life. This is the suffering. This is the brokenness. This is the sickness. It's the broken relationships. It's the lost job. It's pain. It's sorrow. It's the things that we pray to God that he will not allow our children to experience. It's the things that we pray to God that he will not allow us to go through. It's our, it's our worst fear. It's our worst nightmare. But they call it a concealed good. The revealed good is a very superficial thing. It kind of comes from a very basic um, lower part of God's divine presence. It's, it's all the blessings that we see around us. Like right now, maybe a concealed good, something we don't see is we have no air conditioning. A revealed good is we would have one, you know, so, so, so something like that. The concealed good or suffering is much deeper. It comes from the very heart, the, the, the depths of who God is. And so we have all of these outside blessings, these things that we take for granted, but then there's the suffering, the pain, and the brokenness, and the sages will teach that that's God's concealed goodness right from the very depths of who God is. And so what does this mean for us? That in suffering, in pain, in brokenness, we can encounter a deeper level of intimacy of God than we have never experienced before. Something that hasn't been revealed to us. Something from the very depths of who God is. If the universe is constantly being recreated and stretched a little bit more to allow the divine light of God to exist there and to shine there, then we too, through suffering, are being stretched just a little bit each time, allowing the divine light of God to land within us and to take over and to shine through us. We need to be stretched to allow that in. And at times it feels like that light just, just pushes and it forces itself in and it hurts and the process is painful. One rabbi would write that the dilation of our souls hurts. And sometimes it's like, man, you can only see the darkness. But isn't that the process of sanctification? Are you sanctified you become more like Jesus when everything is going really good in your life? Or do you find yourself pressing in and finding how to become more like Jesus through the trauma and the pain and the suffering in your life? And so we could take this idea of the concealed goodness of God, the suffering of God, and we can, we can eventually, hopefully, someday stand back and retrospect and look and say, and, and once the work is done, once that light has been integrated into our souls, things can take on a different meaning. Things can begin to look different. They get reframed. And from a slightly different 
expanded perception, one day we could look at that, and I believe now we would call it, it was a blessing in disguise. I will say this, depending on the suffering that you're going through, depending on the brokenness that you've experienced, this could take weeks, take months, years, a lifetime, maybe not even in this lifetime, maybe even in the world to come, where you can look back and go, wow, I see now what God was trying to do, that, that it would be the blessing. But somehow, through God's divine understanding of the way things are, and through our presence not understanding completely of who God is, that suffering somehow brings us to a deeper place. It makes, us, it makes us a little wiser. We enter into a new relationship, a deeper relationship with the creator of all things. Some new aspect of the divine has made its way into our soul. And as that pain slowly ceases and it goes away, the treasure of that light remains. And that light is life. That light is Jesus revealing himself to us. He's the light of the world. And that life was the light to all people, full, abundant life. Nothing happens because God just has allowed it. Could it be that God has created every moment that he would reveal himself deeper and more intimately to his creation? That's his desire. You know, it's easy to say God is good all the time, all the time God is good when things are going really good. Very easy, but there's, there's a deeper level of maturity that takes place that if you can go through something traumatic, suffering, or broken and say, God is still good something different going on. And that, I believe, comes from the deeper intimacy we experience through those times. The world can be a very, very dark, dark place right now. It's true. But God wants us to see through the light or see through the darkness. And so through this idea of God's concealed goodness, which is really what we would call suffering, we become more intimately connected to him. Our relationship deepens, and as we know him more intimately, and as our relation deepens with him, we can begin to perceive the goodness of God through suffering. And his goodness is revealed, and still his goodness is concealed. And maybe, just maybe, just maybe, this is why Paul was able to write in Romans chapter 8, And we know that in all things, all things, not some things, not just the good things, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. I hope that has made you uneasy. I hope that has challenged you in your theology. You don't have to agree. That's, that's, in fact, I would be sad if everybody would just went, that was amazing. Well, I would be sad if you didn't say that, at least one of you. Anyway, anyway so, but, but, but let, that, let that just kind of settle and rest and, and let it challenge the things that you believe. Don't take this faith for granted. 
Wrestle with it, work it, understand why you believe God is good. And if somebody says why God is good, make sure you can give them an answer besides, well, the Bible tells me so. Because a lot of people don't believe this book is what we believe it is. Use the experiences in your life to show the goodness of God, not just on the mountaintop experiences, but also in the trenches where things did not look good and you held on to the promise that God loves you. God is good. Somehow, somewhere, in some way, that this will work out for, for, for good. Let's pray. God, we don't fully understand your goodness, and I want to thank you for that because if I could understand you, God, you would cease to be my God. Thank you for the mystery of who you are, but thank you for revealing to us what we need. And thank you for revealing to us even more and more as we press into you, as we press into you, as we pray, as we try to figure this thing out. God, I want to thank you that you are almighty, that you are gracious, and that you love. Thank you for your love. And as we leave here, let us always remember that God is good God. Amen.